Thank you for listening to this podcast from Analong Presbyterian Church. You can find out more about this teaching series on the tabernacle by visiting www.analongpc.org forward slash midweek. Check the show notes for more information and links to additional resources. Well, we're in part four, uh, thinking of the tabernacle. We're moving forward in Exodus 25, and we're looking at the holy place um, this evening. And uh, we'll come to, to understand what that is in just a moment. But the handouts are here. Does everybody, first of all, have the handout for this evening? Everyone has a copy of that. Then one, two, and three are here as well. Also, if you've had a change of heart and think that you do want to now design or try your own tabernacle model, there's still copies here. And uh, for those of you who are taking on that challenge, I'm looking forward to, to seeing those presented to us and seeing how they're going. Um, the one thing I will say, uh, one or two people have mentioned this, and, and I'm encouraged by it, but it's, it's also just to say, uh, you may think, listen, hearing it the first time is, is fine by me, I don't need to hear it again. But all of these are online talks, either video um, or just as an audio if you want to put on a phone or something and take it with you. And the handouts as well, that if you do want to go over anything, it's all there for you. Um, and even if there's if you miss a night, it's there. And the address is there at the bottom. Oh, it's not. It's come off. It's on page four. Sorry, it's dropped off on the back, top of page four there. You'll see. But if you go to the church website, it's there midweek at the top and you'll find it. So let's turn to our scriptures this evening. And we're going to turn to Exodus 25, and we're going to read verses 23 to 40. So have it open there if you have your Bible with you, um, or if you're following along on a phone, um, Exodus 25, and we'll begin at verse 23. And it's a long enough passage, we're only taking two um, of the articles of furniture this evening. Um, There are three, uh, but we're only going to look at two, um, and I'll explain why uh, a a little bit later uh, as we come to that. So Exodus 25, and beginning at verse 23, this is what we read. God says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth width, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with your, uh, sorry, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups 
made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches, branch, branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven, la seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for, for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, we have been looking at the uh, tabernacle now and we've been taking it in its, um, in its uh, pieces. And we began by looking generally what was the tabernacle all about, but we started in the most holy place because the tabernacle itself has three parts to it. And here you have, you don't have this in your handout, but here it is on the screen for you to see. The three parts are the court itself, uh, the court of the tabernacle, then the tabernacle, and the tabernacle's in two parts. We have the holy place and then we have the most holy place. So that's where we've been looking. That's where we've seen the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat on top. The only piece of furniture behind the curtain or behind the veil. The significance of that, as we thought the last time, was uh, that was the presence of God among the people. The mercy seat was designed in such a way that it looked like a throne. And that was where God would meet with his people. Of course, he wasn't going to meet with all the people, but the people's representative. Uh, and that would be uh, the most high priest who would come in to that. Uh, the reason why we sung uh, 975 is not simply because of what we're going to look at this evening, but it talks about that throne of God, because that's where God said he would sit. And so the, the way that the ark was fashioned was because of how God would, would sit as it were a throne giving whatever he needed to give to, his, uh, to the people's representative or his representative to the people. What he would be sitting on, as it were, the Ark of the Covenant itself had those items in it, manna, a bit of manna, uh, the rod, the blossom on it, and also then the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, which were God's best for the community of his people. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could make his way in and he would then atone for the sin of the people. Or well, having done that, go in and know that he could stand before God on their behalf so that they would have the forgiveness of sins. So the most holy place, uh, with what possibly is the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. But of course, every piece of furniture is important. And something I want you to keep in mind, I mentioned this last week. It's not written down anywhere just yet because we'll come to that whenever we look at the design of the tabernacle tent itself. But uh, whenever we do come to look at it, and there it is, as you have it on your handout, that's where we're talking about the most holy place. But whenever we come to think of, of what this covering was around it, the links with creation cannot be missed. And we're going to see that this evening. 
What happened in Genesis 3? There was creation, perfect world. Adam and Eve, animals and everything that God made. No sin. Sin came into the world, thereby cursing uh, creation. Meaning that sin came in and sin would always spoil creation. And what the tabernacle was, was to be an image again of, of what the people had lost and what they would crave for. Of course, they could never go back to Eden. But what they could do was look to a heavenly kingdom. And so the tabernacle was carefully designed to point the people to an eternity of perfection. What they lost in Eden was still ahead of them if they worshipped and obeyed the one true God. And again, coming back to why I've called this series Worship by God's Design, God has designed every, every inch of this because it is, speaks of something how the people then were to worship him, but how even we today are to worship him. So that is the most holy um, place there um, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the significance of it as part of the tabernacle is what we read there in Exodus 25 and 22 that says, There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you all about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This was God coming near. This was God coming to be with his people in the center of the court, in the most important place in the tabernacle, at the center of the community of his people. And this is what he says he's going to do. And that's fine. The people are to worship him. So how are they going to do that? And that's where we're going to look at this evening. The next part of the tabernacle, the, most, or the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place is the next part there that you have in that picture at the top of your handout. And in it, there are three pieces of furniture. And so there are... Um, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of the bread of the presence. Now, we're only going to look at uh, the lampstand and the table uh, for the bread this evening, and we'll look at the altar of incense um, in a few weeks' time, whenever we come to that. It's much later in Exodus, so we'll come to that in due course. So we're going to begin by thinking about the table of uh, a table for bread, a table of the presence of uh, the bread or the showbread. And that's the first section of the passage that we read this evening from 23 through uh, to 30. We all love um, a good bit of bread. Well, if you're from Ulster, at least that's what you should do. Uh, either soda bread without yeast or proper loaf pan bread. I'm a baker's son. I'm going to tell you bread is good for you. It's good for bakers. It's good for baker's children um, in more ways than one. We know bread. We know the significance of bread throughout the story of Scripture. And so there, the first piece of furniture that we have in the holy place is a table that is made. A table that is not dissimilar from the same size as that of the Ark of the Covenant. And so it had to be made of acacia wood overlaid with gold and decorated finely so that it would be a place that would be recognized as being special and important. And it was just that. It was a table. Um, every Sabbath, the high priest would come and would put 12 loaves of bread. And we'll come to that in a moment. It was also a table, as you read, there was utensils for it. 
there was going to be cups for the drink offering, but there was also going to be bowls for the incense that was then going to be put on the altar of incense. So it was a functional piece uh, of furniture, but yet what it held had deep significance for the people of God. So it was different in size uh, from the Ark of the Covenant, but yet it was of a similar shape. And like the Ark, the table had rings on its legs so that it could be carried, um, so that it could go with the rest of the furniture as the people traveled. But once they settled, for wherever they were going to settle, the tent would go up and everything would be put in its place so that the people of God could worship well. So the significance of the bread. I needn't tell you the reason why there's 12. Um, we'll come to that again, but why bread? Again, what was lost? What was lost in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 took away from humankind the ability to simply go into the garden and take whatever they wanted. Part of the, the curse that has been on humankind is that we have to dig the ground for our food. And so what this displayed was that actually God is going to provide. And, and after all, isn't that what God had done? God had provided for these people so far. Even with their grumbling, he provided what they needed. And so he uh, has then said that these 12 loaves are a symbol and a sign of my provision for you. And so I have said it there, um, what, they, uh, what they represent. Um, but we're going to jump to Leviticus just before, um, and we're going to read what actually Leviticus says about this bread, because it's not actually here in Exodus that we learn about it. The significance of it is then in Leviticus 24, and verses 5 to 9 say, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So really, What's going on here is two things at work. The reason for it, um, so why are Aaron and his sons favored? Well, obviously they're the Levites who, who serve at the temple, or would serve at the temple, but in the tabernacle as well. Um, but they represent the people before God. So by consuming the bread, obviously it's not 12 loaves for everyone. They are representing the people's understanding of the significance of this, that it is God's gift, that it is God's provision. It has always been God's way that he would provide for his people. But notice what Leviticus says, that it is a covenant. It is from the people, uh, sorry, it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. The people recognize that God provides, that they're not the masters of their own industry. That as God provided in the garden, so he would provide for them in the wilderness. And that was represented by these 12 loaves. So Aaron, the high priest, arranged the 12 loaves in two piles every Sabbath day. And it reminded the Israelites of God's provision in the wilderness as he brought them through it, but sustaining their crops 
going into the future of Israel as they farmed the land, as they did what they did year in, year out. It was to remind them of just how good God was in, their, in his continual provision for them. Of course, we can't get past the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's certainly no doubt that there's some connection, if not a, a significant connection to that, but Scripture doesn't say, so we can't assume. We can only speculate. Um, but there at the last line of that paragraph, just under where I put Leviticus 24, is the significance that it is a reminder, a visible reminder, that everything in Israel belongs to the Lord. They were his. And so he would provide for them. He would give to them. So as much as the bread was offered uh, to the priests for them to take, it was to recognize that everything, the bread and the people, a visible reminder that everything of Israel belonged to the Lord. So what's the significance then for us today? A table with bread on it. You, you can't miss that picture. It points us to the Lord's Supper. And I'm not suggesting that what the table for bread and the bread on it was there was as if it was communion. It wasn't. It, it had a very different purpose. But the one thing remained, the covenant. So as much as this was a covenant promise to the people um, about God's continued faithfulness to them, so for us, as we come to the Lord's table, whatever way that table is fashioned with bread on it, we come in the new covenant, recognizing for what Christ has done. And, and let's remind ourselves of the words that we say, or that we know from communion in Luke 22, verses 19 to 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after you had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. God's promises at work. Promises to the children of Israel, but promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ for us today. So that as the people of old knew of their uh, representatives before God, taking of the bread as a sign of their promise to God and recognizing him as the God who provides all. So in our taking of the bread, we recognize the covenant, the new covenant through the blood of Christ, the body on the cross, the blood that was shed for us today to know the continuation of God's promises through salvation, through Jesus Christ. God designed specifically what the tabernacle should be, because everything in the tabernacle is a foreshadow of what was to come. Not, was, not what was to come in the, the kingship of Saul or David, but what was to come in Christ. That's what the tabernacle looks to. Of course, it, it guided and it shaped religious worship and practice in Israel for generations and centuries, but it points us to Christ to remind us that even right at the heart when worship was being organized for the community, this is the first time they came together as a whole people to worship God. Right at the heart of it was God's provision. And so we recognize the table of the Lord as God's continued provision for us, that salvation can only come through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's a table for bread. We go on to the lampstand of pure gold. This is so different from everything else in the, uh, the tabernacle. I wonder, did you pick it up? 
uh, as I was reading it. It was to be fashioned in one piece. It couldn't be taken apart to be you know, put away, to be carried. Uh, there was nothing could be detached from it. Uh, it was one piece. Now, yes, probably everything was made separately and then, but all put together so that it couldn't be taken apart again. And again, this is where we see, not as we saw with the table, you know, physical creation there, the bread on the table, we actually see creation weaved into the gold of the lampstand. So in the holy place, there would be a lampstand. Practically speaking, the priest needed to see. It's a tent. There, there's no skylights. It's, and whenever we get to see the thickness of what this tent was, it was a dark place. And so the lampstand was practical. And that's what the passage said. It said that it would sit there and it would shine light so that uh, the priest could see what they were doing uh, and how they were doing it. But it also was to be a reminder, once again, of creation being restored, that it would be restored. The almond blossom brought onto this lampstand and the detail that was given, uh, phenomenal. Um, you have the picture of it there on your handout. I think that does poor justice to what it probably looked like. Again, the people didn't get to see it. The people only got to hear about it. But I can imagine that as, as it would have provided light, glinting off the gold, it was a sight to be seen and to behold. So the lampstand is there. And from the description of the lampstand in verses 32 to 36, we see that it resembles and styles with apple blossom. It talks about branches. You, again, you can't get away from this, this sense that it's a tree with a central trunk and branches coming off. That's the image that you get from this piece of furniture. Once again, bringing us back to God restoring his people as he will restore creation in the new heaven and the new earth. And so as the priests did their work in the tabernacle under the illumination of the lampstand, they and all Israel then by extension, because they were the representatives before God, would be reminded that it was God who was the true light. The God who would guide them in the wilderness by night and day was still the God who would guide them in worship of him. He has always been about drawing his people to himself. And he has always used light as that way, of, that symbol of people drawing near to him. And of course, John 1 verses 4 to 5, even before Christ comes on the scene, in John's great prologue where he tries to bring all of the language of the Old Testament into the New Testament so that whenever Christ comes, people will know exactly what everything in the Old Testament means. We have in the prologue that we re read just a few months ago, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Whenever you read what we read here in Exodus, compared now to John chapter 1, we get a new perspective. Imagine if you were a priest working in the tabernacle, and you read that. The light shines in the darkness. The light shone in the holy place, that dark place, to provide illumination so they could be drawn nearer to God and by extension the people being drawn nearer to God. But of course we understand it, knowing that Christ is the light of the world as we come to see in one of our passages in just a moment. He is the life. 
once again, light being used as a way of drawing us to God. And so right here in the heart of the tabernacle, you have this light that shines brightly. Not only to give uh, practical light for those who would serve, but to be a symbol that God continues to draw people to himself. Now, the passage concludes in verse 40. And this is a very significant uh, verse. I don't have it on the screen and I don't have it on your handout there, but I'll read it for you again. Because it says, God's command, whenever it comes to the golden lampstand, and see that you make them, talking about everything so far, after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. God made it very clear, and he will make it clear again. He will repeat this to Moses and say, you make sure you follow this to the very letter that I have given. As I was reading the golden lampstand, it was repetitive. Why didn't it just say, just make every stem the same? God made it very clear that there was to be no difference, that what you do on one side, it would be on the other side. He was explicit in what had to happen. And as we know Christ as the light of the world and as our Savior, we must follow his commands in all of life, even under the new covenant. Yes, we're not ruled by law. We're not saved by law. But we can't ignore what was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law that God gave was to order uh, society. It was to order his people and how they would live together as a people, but also how they would worship him. Matthew Henry, if you're not familiar with who he is, he's a commentator from uh, 1800s, and uh, he says this, all his ordinances must be administered according to his institutions or his instructions. Christ's instruction to his disciples in Matthew 28 verse 20 is similar to this. Observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Although the tabernacle will teach us much about what it means to worship God, we've seen that with the table of the showbread, we've seen it with the lampstand. But we're going to see this statement from God coming up time and again. What I have told you, you follow to the letter of the law. And that's what Matthew Henry's teasing out. He's saying Christ gave the exact same command in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He was before time. All things in creation were created through him, by him. That means that Christ is not just talking about what he taught physically here on earth, but he's talking about the full counsel of God that the disciples then would have known in uh, their uh, oral tradition of teaching from the Old Testament, but what we know as the full canon of Scripture that we have from Genesis through to Revelation. This is what is being pointed here, that we obey everything that it says. We don't leave anything out. So what is the application for today? How do, how do we understand this? And yes, there are three uh, pieces of furniture, but we'll come to the altar of incense uh, later um, in, in a few weeks' time. But the two pieces of furniture in the holy place point us to Jesus. That's what they do. Communion and light. The light of the world. They point us to him and how we are to live for him but also how we're to worship him. 
Now, worship isn't what we do on a Sunday. That's only part of worship. Paul tells us that everything we do is worship to God. Now, that changes how we view each day, changes how we get up in the morning, changes how we view our places of work, changes how we view our families, changes how we view our social community around us. What we do, we call public worship because it's that moment where publicly, corporately, we come together to do things together in terms of worship of God, but that doesn't mean that every other minute of every other day isn't worship. God calls us to worship of Him. And so in this, uh, these two pieces of furniture, they're pointing us to Christ and what it means to worship Him as a church, the institution that uh, God has given us, the bride of Christ, by which we are to organize ourselves as His people, but also how we are to live for Him whenever we're not together as His people. And so what the table does ultimately, that table of pure gold with the bread on top and the other things that'll be there that we'll come to talk about, that points us to the sacrifice of Jesus, why there is still need for a table and why there's still need for a bread on that table because of Christ's sacrifice. And so here you have, right at the start of the organization of worship of God's people, you have pointing to Christ. You've, you've pointing to the sacrifice where that will come. Because that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, the priests every year had to sacrifice, had to sprinkle the blood and then go into the Holy of Holies, to go into the most holy place once a year for the atonement of the sin of the people of God. And would always have to be a fresh sacrifice. But Christ died once, and once only for, the, uh, for sins, the righteous one, for we the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God so that we can put to death what is in the flesh, and be made alive in the spirit. I think we'd all love a table of pure gold. Well, we might all love the value of a table of pure gold and maybe sell it on eBay and see what we can get for it. But the most precious metal in the world sat in that tabernacle where God dwelt, where 12 loaves of bread that was symbol to the people of his provision for them has now been transformed into a precious wooden table that we gather around six times a year so that we can partake together in this covenant meal that has been given to us. And some people in our last uh, communicants classes, someone said, why do we only do it six times a year? Why don't we do it every week? I don't know the answer to that. There, there's nothing that, that tells us that. Um, but what we have learned is that when we be, do something so often, we, we lose its value. We lose its familiarity, or it becomes so familiar we, we lose its wonder. I have no problem with, with doing it six times a year. Not at all. Because what it does each time, I hope each time that we come, it reminds us afresh that it isn't so, so familiar that we can gather around and enjoy it as if we're enjoying it for the first time. And that's going to be one of our questions that we'll come to. Because as we worship today, we must always recognize what Christ has done for us 
so that we can be assured of the forgiveness of sins. And if you do come to the evening service, you'll notice that for the past two years we've been doing that. I've always, in every uh, opening prayer, I've always sought the forgiveness of sins, not because I can forgive, but only God can. But we need to be assured that we are forgiven. And I can't give that assurance, but God can through his word. And so as we worship today, understanding of the sacrificial uh, offering of Christ on the cross, well, that shapes how we worship because it gives us gratitude in our hearts that will bring us to a table with bread and wine on it that we will celebrate and remember what Christ has done. Then the lampstand of pure gold, well, it points us to Christ's ministry at work in our lives. Because as Jesus himself says in uh, John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. It's, it's a wonderful picture. I, I have to say, I've preached that sermon a couple of times from that passage. And I still think it's a wonderful image because Jesus is saying these words just as the Passover is finished. And as the Passover finished in Jerusalem, the two cauldrons that sat at the top of the steps of the temple that had uh, been lit for the period, a week of Passover, there was oil in them and it just burned and it was these huge flames, nothing like you can imagine in terms of what you might see in a gas thing now. But these two beacons illuminated Jerusalem. They guided the pilgrims to come to worship at Passover. Well, as soon as Passover's finished, they're extinguished. And after they're extinguished, their smoke comes up for quite a while because the oil is hot after being there for a week. And Jesus is standing, John tells us, right in between these two beacons with the extinguished light, almost to say, well, where is your light now? It's good for seven days, but I am the light of the world forever. I am the one who illuminates the way. I am the one who guides. And because I am light and light is pure, well, I am the truth. And so that's what... Um, that's what the uh, the candle or the light stand uh, or the lamp stand shows us. It shows us the purity of Jesus at work in us, that He continues to guide us, that the light, the truth that we have in His Word, just as we were looking at the in verse forty, see that you do things after the pattern that God has stated and God has designed. This is what the lamp stand points us to, following the way of Jesus that we may know his light in all its truth and all its purity, and that we will follow it rather than the way of the world. It's interesting how furniture uh, can be so significant uh, to us, but then we shouldn't be surprised about that. I have waiting for me in my mother's house, and of course you'll appreciate it's waiting till a certain time in the future, when there'll be a grandfather clock coming to uh, the manse, that grandfather clock has been in our family for four generations. I don't think, hmm, must be worth a pretty penny. It's not. We've had it valued. <laughs> it's not worth that much at all. But it's worth significance in its family meaning. Can't put a price on that. Furniture does mean something to us. Chairs, number of homes that I've gone into, particularly for wedding anniversary. Oh yeah, that sofa you're sitting on, we got at our wedding or something else, dishes, or things in our homes. They are significant, so why 
should we be surprised that in God's home, in the tabernacle and everything that we have now in our meeting house that helps us to understand the fullness of all of these items, they are special. They point us ultimately to Christ because that's what God's design for worship is, that we will worship him through his, only, his one and only son, that we will celebrate and remember at communion and that we will know the light of the world guiding us and guiding us home. And so as you think in these things, there's a couple of questions. They're shorter. These are the shortest ones we've had in our handouts so far. But here's the first one for you. What significance does the Lord's Supper have for you? Have you ever walked into church on a communion Sunday and said, oh, I forgot it was communion this Sunday, and you walk in and you forgot to complete your token and things like that, and you have to rush out and get it like that? I wonder what significance communion has, because it should have a huge significance to you for multiple reasons that I don't have time to go into this evening, but it's simply the celebration and the remembrance. It's not a wake. That's not what coming to the Lord's table is. When we read of what the early church did and how it celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper, it, it wasn't a wake. They gathered around feasting because of the joy of the Savior and his sacrifice. Awake means that someone has died. And Christ has died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And so that's why it is a table of celebration as well as remembrance. So what significance does it have for you? We're gonna, we're gonna come to it on Easter Sunday evening. We're gonna celebrate communion on Easter Sunday evening as we do. What a wonderful day to do it. How will you approach that? How will you begin to approach it now? as a significant moment, not just on that day, not just in April, but in the year that we worship together. Second question there, how do you live daily in the light of the Savior? What light does Christ project or illuminate onto your life that helps you live each day? How, how do you know him guiding the way with that great illumination where the cauldrons have been extinguished and he declares he is the light of the world. And whoever follows him is in the light of the truth and the light of life. Again, what John told us Christ had come to do. You see, if we believe that every day is our opportunity to worship God, whether you sing around the kitchen or you show act of kindness for the sake of Christ to your next door neighbor or whatever it may be, how do you know Christ leading you by his light in that I suppose what it boils down to is, are you looking for it? Are you even conscious that on your Monday to Saturday, we should be looking for the light of Christ to guide us? And then thirdly is that general question, how can greater understanding of the holy place draw you closer to God as you live for him? What does it mean to understand this, his work, and how it applies to you uh, in your life in this moment? Well, that's where we'll finish for tonight. Next week, we're going to look at the whole outer covering of the tabernacle and what that meant and its significance of the embroidery. But as we finish for tonight, let me pray for us and then we'll all come to a time of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you that as we look at these things, they have great significance for us because they tell us something of you, but they also tell us of your great plan of salvation. Even so many years ago, they pointed to Christ they pointed your people to you and worship of you as their saviour. And thank you that in the new covenant, through Christ's blood, 
we know it fulfilled in him. And so as we think of what we've learned, as we think of these questions, these significant questions for us, Father, help us to live well for you in the light of what we've learned, that we will continue to know you as our great and our loving God. So be with us, we pray, as we continue to seek and serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.